Hey everyone, welcome to They Teach That, a podcast about film, video, and TV production programs in our schools. I'm your host, Kevin Patterson. Okay, before we get into today's episode, I want to make a quick programming note. Uh, I'm going to take a one-week hiatus next week for the 4th of July. Uh, I've got a lot to get done around my house as my wife is expecting our first child in mid-September. Uh, so I need to make sure I'm getting a nursery prepped and all sorts of other things. So it'll help if I don't have to worry about getting an episode out next week. Uh, I do plan to keep up the weekly routine after that, though. In fact, I've already recorded the next episode, which I'll let you know about at the end of this episode. Um, and hopefully I'll have a little more time next week to try to plan out episodes in the pipeline for the months of July and, and August. If you're relatively new to the podcast format as a listener... Uh, maybe this is one of or the first podcasts that you've kind of gotten into listening. Um, you might find that my week off is going to leave you with a void in your newfound podcast listening habits. Uh, I'm going to recommend a couple mainstream podcasts that, that I really enjoy. Um, the podcast of, of all podcasts that I would definitely recommend is the first season of Serial. It's from 2014 uh, with Sarah Koenig as the host. Uh, it takes a hard look at the uh, case of the conviction of Adnan Syed. Uh, for a lot of people, Serial was the podcast series that first introduced them to podcasts. But that was definitely the experience for me. Um, I have my students listen to the first episode every year. And if you find yourself on a road trip for the 4th of July next week, it's a great podcast to binge. Uh, although a word of warning on that, uh, there's definitely some mature content, including language. So it's not ideal if you have kids listening. Uh, I always give my high school students a heads up on the content when I ask them to listen to it. Um, but great podcast series. I definitely recommend uh, the first season of Serial. Uh, I also absolutely love NPR Planet Money. Uh, the title might make it sound like it's about making money, but it's really about economics. Um, they discuss a, a variety of topics. For instance, one episode is about how the holiday complex came about. Um, which, you know, is how each day seems to be a holiday of some sort, like National Jelly Bean Day or something like that. Um, on the day I'm recording this, it's actually National Handshake Day, so make of that what you will. Um, but they'll cover a variety of topics that, that relate to the national economy and niche markets. Um, I don't think I've listened to an episode that I haven't found really interesting. Um, their episodes are usually very succinct, uh, only about 20 minutes each. Uh, so they're just incredibly well-written and, and well-researched, uh, so I love them. And again, that's NPR Planet Money. Check them out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay, so for this show, uh, my guest this week is Don Goble from Ledoux Horton Watkins High School in Missouri. Uh, Don was the Journalism Education Association's 2015 National Broadcast Advisor of the Year and speaks at numerous conferences throughout the year. Uh, I learned about Don by chance. I was new to the Journalism Education Association at the end of 2015. I went to their national convention here in Orlando that fall. If you aren't familiar with it, the National Scholastic Press and Journalism Education Association work together to do two national conventions every year, one in the fall and one in the spring. And the fall convention was here in Orlando in 2015. And a quick plug for fellow Floridians, it'll be back here in the fall of 2020. Uh, so at that 2015 convention, I was teaching a session and, and doing some contest judging. I remember I had a, a brief window of time uh, to go to one session for myself. And so I just kind of picked one on the schedule related to broadcasts. And it happened to be a session taught by Don, whom I wasn't familiar with at the time. 
Um, I don't remember now what that session was about, but I remember it being packed because I found myself sitting on the floor. And I just remember thinking how great of a session it was. And uh, it prompted me to want to wanna keep tabs on some of what Don has shared on his website since then. Um, that website is dongobel.com. Uh, I knew he'd have a lot to offer in this discussion and was fortunate that he was able to join me during his busy summer schedule. In this episode, we discuss, amongst many things, his program's response to a common problem when other teachers won't tune in to the student broadcasts that's shown to the school. We're all fighting the same losing battle, and we have to decide, do we want to fight that losing battle, or do we want to think and look at things differently? And so we decided to look at things differently, and we decided to put our videos online. His belief in the need for media literacy. You know, media literacy, in my opinion, is the number one skill in the United States that is not being valued or taught in schools across the country. I mean, I believe it's as, it's as important to literacy as reading and writing and science and math because we're exposed to it every single day. And how we can engage students with the creation of digital content. But I think there are really smart ways that we can teach kids about the power of social media, about the power of connectivity and networking, and then about the power of putting it down and having a conversation. One plug that we forgot to make at the end of our discussion that I'll, I'll go ahead and make now is that Don is doing a free webinar series through SchoolTube. Uh, you can join in on that on July 11th. The easiest place for me to tell you to go to, to to get the link to that is to follow him on Twitter at dgobel2001 uh, and a link is available in the pin tweet at the top of his profile. Uh, as you'll hear in this episode, Don is very passionate about the role of media literacy and its importance in a 21st century classroom. I think that we're in a period of time where we've kind of experienced a, a relatively sudden saturation of media uh, and it's really caught us off guard. It's almost like a flash flood that we didn't have the proper infrastructure in place to handle. I'm still in my 20s, barely, but I'm still there. Uh, so I'm relatively close in age to the kids that we're teaching, but, but there's just a night and day difference in the media I consumed at their age and the media that they, that they now consume with just the quantity of access points they have and, and how democratized media creation has become. Uh, and as Don's gonna mention, we really haven't effectively addressed this in our approach to education. Uh, and I wanna add my own observation that I even find a good number of adults who are ill-equipped for the media environment they're interacting with. The dissemination of fake news during the election cycle of 2016 is the primary example we can probably turn to of media illiterate adults. And sadly, I need to clarify this, but when I say the term fake news, I'm not talking about uh, an insult towards news that you don't like, but just talking about content completely made up, uh, but that's masquerading as actual journalism and people unwittingly sharing it as such. You have 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds demonstrating at times that they have no understanding on how to properly discern what they're consuming in the form of an article, a video, or a meme, and just clicking that share button. Um, we don't go into the topic of, of fake news in this discussion, but I use that example to set the stage for the notion that media literacy is definitely a huge need to be addressed, not only in our classrooms, but in society as a whole. Uh, and we need to prepare our students for the role that they're gonna play interacting with media in a 21st century society. So, all right, I've done a lot of talking, too much in fact, so without further ado, let's get this episode started. Okay, I am here with Don Goble. Don, 
you just got done with a uh, keynote speech at a, a conference, I believe it's called Go Share Missouri, that you can tell us about in just a minute. But uh, how are you doing, Don? How, how's your summer been? Kevin, I'm doing great. It's an honor to be with you on this podcast. I've had a chance to listen to your other interviews and uh, really great content material, especially for uh, the beginning teacher or the teacher who's trying to refresh. You've, you've done a great job. So I'm really honored to take some time out today to talk to you. My, uh, As you mentioned, my travel schedule just began for the summer, and I will be uh, making my rounds to a few different conferences and journalism camps. Um, but uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome. You want to tell us a little bit about some of the conferences that you're, you're going to and, and perhaps the one that you, uh, at the time of recording this, the one that you just uh, spoke at? Sure. So uh, the, the conference that I, I was the closing keynote at Go Share Missouri, which is a cohort of um, schools in the state of Missouri that are all Apple devices one-to-one, whether it's iPad or MacBook Airs uh, or whether the, the schools allow their kids to use their iPhones. And so it was a really great audience. I, I, I'm a huge Apple guy, and I don't often have the opportunity to talk to just Apple educators, you know, using the devices. So that was really cool to do that. Um, I was honored to be the closing keynote. And what I talked about was uh, the power of video and the power of student voice and celebrating and leveraging our student voice, uh, voices, I should say. And um, really, you know, uh, allowing our students to create through the through media and video and then putting it out there and publishing it. And so uh, that was uh, that was my main message. Uh, of course, I, I went through a few different examples, and you know, I speak to a lot of K to twelve and and beyond audiences, and all of it though, all of my talks are rooted in journalism, and I even infuse student journalism, especially in, uh, when I talk to elementary teachers and middle school teachers about having their kids be the uh, the journalists of their class, you know, report the stories of their units, be the reporters of their books, of um, reporting on the science that they're learning, and using the journalistic principles um, that, that foundationally I learned. And so um, taking that mindset and, and sharing it with other educators. And so I'll do a few conferences like that, and then Coming up next week, I actually head to the Gloria Shields uh, Journalism uh, Conference uh, Workshop in Dallas, Texas. It's one of the largest scholastic journalism workshops in the country. It's been around for a really, really long time, and it's traditionally been newspaper and yearbook and design. Um, and then a few years ago, I would, maybe four, five, six years ago now, I don't even recall, it kind of blends together, but um, they started infusing video. And so... Um, my good friend Jim McCarthy from California will teach the basic uh, videography students, and then I get to do the advanced students, which is also also awesome because it's not often I get to work with kids who already have knowledge of cinematography and storytelling. And so one of the best parts about that conference is I'll, on the second day we're there, we go to a small town called Old Town Carrollton, which is like straight out of you know, maybe the 40s or the 50s, and they have, I drop them there, and they have 90 minutes to find a story and record it. And then we come back to the, uh, the, the hotel where, the, where we stay, and they get about four to five hours to edit it. So just like a, um, a professional reporter. 
And uh, it's an amazing experience and a lot of fun for me to do. Awesome. That sounds like a, a heck of an experience for, uh, for students. Um, are, are, are tell you, how many different uh, broadcast students usually participate in, in that conference? Well, next week I have 30. Uh, and so that's grown each year. It started, I started with about 18 and it's grown to about 30 in the advanced class. And the beginning class will have 20 plus as well. And so our very first year we had, I think, um, let's see, 18 advanced and maybe like 12 to 15 beginning. So we've grown exponentially the last few years, and which is really good. And, and many times, too, we'll even get um, some students who are on their st- school newspaper, but they come to camp to also learn some video skills. And then the other type of student that we get uh, wants to be the editor or um, you know, of their publication or the editor of their show or the director. And so we get, you know, these kids who want to be leaders, but maybe don't quite have the leadership skills yet. So I get to work with them on that. And so it's great to see the numbers growing. And 30 students uh, is a lot to work with. So fortunately, they give me um, an assistant, which is typically a graduate, a student uh, who graduated from the camp, you know, maybe a few years ago and is in college. So it's a good opportunity for them as well to uh to be a mentor yeah fantastic um all right don let's uh get into talking a little bit about uh uh yourself and and who you are and kind of your background um tell us uh uh, how did you uh just kind of the evolution of your career and how you ended up uh, in a classroom (laughs) Uh, kevin my story is long um so i'll give you the reader's digest version so I went to school in Chicago in the 80s. We had a radio and television station um, that I loved, and I ended up running by the time I was graduating and um, fell in love with it, wanted to be the next Bob Costas, um, be sports and more, because he was always sports and more. He was really, you know, uh, thoughtful and, and intelligent guy. Went to Bradley University to study radio and television, graduated with that degree, was hired as a senior at a CBS affiliate uh, on an FM radio. They hired me full-time on AM talk radio at 21 years old. I was working for a uh, 35-plus target audience, which was unique. Uh, They said they would not put me on the air, though, until I lost my Chicago accent, which was very nasally. Uh, They said they were going to give me six months to do it. I I did it in about two weeks. The station manager gave me a script each day to go home and practice reading from the diaphragm, reading into the mirror to lose the accent. And so I worked in radio and TV for a while and then um, tried for months to get into a bigger market. Didn't quite work, was making peanuts. Had a good friend working in Chicago where I was from in the technology business uh, right at the advent of the internet. And so I moved back home, worked for that company for almost seven years. And at the turn of the century, which is weird to say, but turn of the century when the technology industry crashed, the uh, startups crashed, Um, I was part of a major layoff and took some time off and decided I wanted to get back into what I loved, which was radio and TV, and I thought I would be a teacher. So I was a substitute teacher for about six months, loved it, went back to school to get my master's and teaching certificate and master's uh, degree in curriculum instruction, Um, was a permanent building sub and sub for a few years while I did that, and then was hired by Ladue High School 13 years ago actually to run their uh, speech and debate team 
and teach a broadcasting class. But we had a fully functional television studio, and the principal said we'd really like to use it some more. So um, brought me in. We decided to do live video announcements the very first year. I had no curriculum. Uh, the curriculum that was there before me was really um, more, I don't know, it just it, it didn't quite fit what I wanted to do. So uh, the very first couple years was all about me creating curriculum. Uh, we were digitally editing, which I had never done before. I learned on three-quarter inch editing, and we were using Final Cut Pro 5, I think, at the time. So I relied on students to teach me how to learn to edit, as well as, um, you know, some tutorials, although, you know, YouTube was not available yet, so the YouTube tutorial wasn't the, weren't, weren't available yet. And I just jumped in headfirst and did a lot of the projects with the kids, and that was the greatest way to learn. And I'll tell you to this day, I still do that. Um, we still find projects to collaborate with um, every semester. And, uh, you know, the students lead it, but it's fun for me to kind of jump in and work with them. And so after the first couple of years when they saw that I had some ability with video production, they, they took me away from teaching speech and debate, which was fine with me. <laughs> and uh, they hired a new teacher for that. And they had me start creating videos for the communication department for the district which was also awesome because now I got to have my hand back into video production and storytelling. I got uh, an opportunity for my students to get involved. So we created this live to tape program called Ladue Schools Today, where the kids work on the camera crew and the control room. And that is all led by my phenomenal teaching partner, Martina Davidson, who is our video technology center coordinator. And I have to say that there are any success our students have achieved in our program has been um, equally as important because of the instruction and support that they received from my partner Marty and we are a great tag team together and uh, I can't do my job without her um, she's been amazing to to teach me as well along the way about a number of different items not only in the classroom but outside of the classroom and I think it's really important to have somebody on your staff that you can lean into and lean on and talk to your language and uh, partner with to help students become truly successful. And my partner, Martina Davidson, does that for me. So that's pretty much how it all kind of happened. We've been following that process for the last 13 years. Our program has morphed quite a bit. Um, but, I, I, you know, obviously my favorite part is, is working with those students and uh, helping them find a passion in storytelling and uh, media. I'm kind of curious about the, your, your first few years and, and kind of how you found the experience of uh, having to kind of create your curriculum. And as you said, YouTube was in its infancy. I mean, it just started in 2005 and, and there just wasn't quite the online community or resources, I think, available uh, for broadcast uh, programs in particular in the mid-2000s. Um, what was that experience like and, and you kind of what, what growing pains, I guess, did you kind of go through and, and what resources did you turn to to kind of you go through and, and craft your own curriculum? Well, I'm a, a type A, so I already had some ideas of what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to kind of run a, um, well, what I thought, a 60-minute style or Dateline style show, which we never quite got to, which was okay. But I wanted to tell those kinds of stories. And then my favorite storyteller was Steve Hartman. 
And so we watched Steve Hartman videos and dissected them. And I've got some funny stories about that later. I've had a chance to, to get to know Steve a little bit, and I tell him this, and he laughed. But we would literally dissect to the second what we saw and what we heard. And I told my kids, these are the types of stories we're going to tell. Since I spent time in the media business, I was really privy to the negative side of media. And, of course, that hasn't changed. And I wanted my students to have... Um, I wanted them, obviously, to be familiar with that side of the business, that it's all about profit and power. But I wanted them to learn how to tell stories that typically would go untold. And that's, of course, what Steve did and does. And so that's the style that we learned. And then I happened to come across and was introduced to a man virtually, didn't know about this, but Dave Davis, who was a guest of yours, um, is in Springfield, Missouri, about three and a half hours away. But um, he had already been running a very successful program, and I was able to access some of his shows and get in touch with him by email. And when we watched his students and programs, we thought, yeah, this is exactly what we would want to do. So let's, let's aspire to be this. Um, early on as well, I was also introduced to the Student Television Network, STN, which I know you're a big part of. And I attended a few conferences first uh, on, my, on my own to gather some info. And then later on, I brought students. And then later on, we just we, we decided to move on to a different organization. So it was really kind of beg, borrow, and steal from those that we respected. Um, it was ideas that I had. And I also really, and I have to tell you, um, enlisted the expertise and interest of the kids. So I knew the kids coming into my class, not all of them wanted to tell, be news journalists. And so that's why originally the, the class name was Broadcast Journalism, and I changed it to Broadcast Technology because we were going to end up doing a lot more than just news. I had kids who wanted to create commercials. Uh, we were going to do a news show, but they wanted to create the show intro or they wanted to create commercials. So we were going to have commercial breaks and they wanted to do PSAs. So I wanted to tell the student body there was a creative outlet beyond just news that they could get involved with. And, um, and so, so then we needed to kind of branch out and, and be larger than that, you know, than just news. And then the final thing that I thought really kind of brought everything together was we needed to identify a brand because being in the business, I also knew that you needed to have a brand. And and the school didn't really know about us. The community didn't know about us. So we needed a logo. We needed a catchphrase. We needed banners and T-shirts. And we needed to brand the heck out of it. And I'm really glad we did that early on because now it's so much easier to do with social media, which we do. But, um, you know, we developed an identity for ourselves, And so something that kids could really attach themselves to. And I think that's what, I, what really resonated with some of your other interviews was that as you were interviewing some of these other teachers, they were saying the same things. And I'm like, yes, exactly. That's, that's how it worked for us as well. So it was a formula that uh, really provided successful. Cool. Uh, you know, I have to add Steve Hartman is a, a part of my uh, classroom as well. Every year I go through and I'll show a series of the um, uh, His Everybody Has a Story uh, segments. And I think when I interviewed Karen McKemmy from Fort Mill High School, she had a, a really good quote from that, that I, I, from my interview with her that I remember. And it's just the fact that we don't talk about the number of planes that land safely each day. You know, we don't talk about, 
those, uh, those small things that happen each day, that those moments in life that, that are good moments, that are positive moments, those don't always make the news. And, and that's what I really like about uh, you know, the stories from Steve. It's, it's these stories that you would never suspect uh, are there, but they're there. And it just shows that there's, um, there's interest in just everyday life and, and things that are happening um, in our everyday interactions. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, uh, he, he's definitely a, a part of my curriculum as well there. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your program and, um, uh, you know, you kind of just hinted at, at your, your, you know, kind of how you kind of got to, you know, where you're, you're at now a bit. Um, tell us about the, your publication. So from what I, I have, have seen that if I'm, let me know if I'm getting this right. You guys have two broadcasts you do. You have a, a, a daily announcement show, uh, and then you have more of a news magazine show, correct? That is correct, although there's a caveat to all of that. So so actually we have three shows. So we have Ledoux View, which was the anchor of our student programming for years. And that has really dwindled, and I'll get into that in a little bit. We have LHS News, which is our morning news announcements, and it's an announcement show. And um, for mo- many years we did it live, and we had a staff of about 20 kids. Um, and we would rotate anchors and rotate jobs so everyone would have a chance to do it. The last few years, though, uh, our school has gone under a major renovation. And so we had to completely change our workflow because we lost our studio, which now we're getting a brand new one, which is going to be amazing. And we'll be able to go live again. But for the last two years, we've had to record the announcements the day before they broadcast. And we weren't able to broadcast them on video throughout the school because we lost that ability through the construction. So we could only do it through um, audio, but yet we still recorded the video and we posted it online. And I'll get to that in a minute as well. And then we produced Ladue Schools Today, which is that district communication talk show I was mentioning about earlier that the kids have a hand in in that live to tape format. And really, the, the I'll jump back to the online. And so as viewing habits changed, Um, And as student experiences changed, we really moved away from producing six to seven to eight Ladue View student programs a year. We used to do one a month, and everyone would have to contribute to it. And a few years back, we really pushed everything online. And we started offering more featured videos um, on our homepage. We offered longer format, the Ladue View show, on another page. We have a news page where we will then archive some of the, show, the, the stories that were featured or maybe they weren't featured. And I can give you a little bit of that workflow and the reason why, but I'll tell you when, and I've heard some from some of your, on your other broadcasts, you know, we fought the, the battle everybody else fights, that the faculty and staff wouldn't turn the TV on, that not enough people were watching it that we tried pushing it out to cable access and it was on the 900 channels and nobody would see it. And now that's okay, so because I teach process over product. But we did want to create an audience that was authentic and we were tired of fighting a losing battle. And let me just be clear on that. I, I travel the country and I hear from every broadcast teacher, that, you know, every broadcast teacher that I talk to and then even the ones that I listen to on podcasts like yours, we're all fighting the same losing battle. And we have to decide, do we want to fight that losing battle or do we want to think and look at things differently? And so we decided to look at things differently. And we decided to put our videos online and feature individual videos. And 
also offer a wide spectrum of media. So kids would blog. We had a photo of the week. We created weekly surveys and poll questions. We solicited uh, feedback and engagement from our community. And we went from, you know, 100 to 200 views of our 15 to 30 minute show to 1,500 to 2,000 page views on average per week. And that to me is much more um, powerful than worrying about certain teachers not turning on the TV for our kids to see the program because we went through all of that. You know, I had students would come in tears. Mr. Goble, Miss Such and Such turned the TV off right when my show came, right when my story came on. And I walked down to that teacher and I said, is that really the experience you want to offer our students? And, you know, it just became too negative. And one of the things I try to stay with is positivity. And so that was not going to be a positive experience being online and pushing our programming online and featuring student work has been positive. And I'll tell you another thing that was turning out to be negative a few years ago, maybe five years ago now, when the stars of my program, the ones that were going to go to college and maybe do this professionally, were having negative experiences trying to get the kids who didn't care about the show, who didn't care about deadlines, who put together crummy work, and yet still felt like they needed to include it so that they wouldn't be excluded. When they started having negative experiences, I said, I can't have that. And so rather than focus on the stories that missed the deadline or that were done crummy just to meet the deadline, we celebrated the stories that were awesome. And we took the best content and featured that. And every student in my class still had to publish to their own digital portfolio. Like they couldn't get away from it. But we didn't necessarily need to include it in a show and we didn't need to feature it on our homepage. And I'll tell you that totally changed the dynamic as well because students are students and I'm not gonna be able to motivate every single one of them as hard as I try. And yet what we have found by featuring only the best work is that those students who are crushing it are motivated to continue to do so. And those kids who see that their work is not being featured, 75% of them I have found, rough number, uh, will want to up their game and they want to be featured. Or the kid who thinks they're not good enough ever to be featured, when you feature their video or their blog, their whole learning experience changes and their motivation changes and now, um, you know, one of the things we always hear is, well, how do you motivate the unmotivated? Well, I don't have a, you know, magic wand to wave, but I can tell you that's one way that has changed um, the outlook for some of my students. And so um, we push everything online. We still will do a Ladue View. We've only done one show per year the last few years. A lot of that has also been due to the lack of enrollment, um, which we can talk about as we move on if you like as well. But um, we continue to push videos out on on our homepage, and the and then we put we push it out on social media. We tweet it, we Facebook it. I do it. I celebrate it. I push it out through my channels and my network, and the feedback has been great. So I'm curious about that. That yeah, I really like that uh, approach. It's definitely um, yeah, it's, it's very modern. It's very much you know forward thinking. I think um, to to use an, a totally online platform. Um, I'm curious with that approach, who your intended audience is and, and who you find um, is viewing your product. 
Yeah, so again, you could talk to 10 different broadcast teachers and get 10 different answers or how they run their program. Every community is different. So for me, I want my students' community to be the world. And I want them to create stories that um, will relate to not only our students in our school, but could relate to your kids or could relate to um, groups of people in Australia who are watching our show. And so we won't always reach that target, but that's kind of the idea. Also with keeping in mind that I like kids to select their what they're interested in and then help them think more broadly because kids will think very narrowly and we can tell the stories of our school which, quite frankly, for me, get kind of boring. I mean, we tell the same stories over and over every year. So if we're going to tell a story about prom, we're going to find a unique angle about prom. We're not just going to tell, well, we've got prom Saturday, and it's at this XYZ hotel. We're going to talk about the the three girls who decided to, to make their own dresses. Or we're going to talk to the guys who can't afford a tuxedo and what their plan is and how they're owning it, you know, to wear whatever they want to wear. So we're going to find a unique story. We could tell the story of the football team and really counting on the seniors to pull us through district this year. And that's a yawn fest. Or we could tell the story of the deaf football player and how he communicates with the rest of the team. Um, Or we could tell the story of the freshman field hockey player who is setting records uh, for the varsity team rather than just covering, you know, well, we hope they have a, you know, counting on the seniors to pull us through. So we will tell the stories of our school, but they've got to be unique. And then I really push my kids out into the St. Louis community. I want them to tell stories that are are larger than the four walls that they are creating it in, in in our building. And then I also want them to follow the news around the world. I want them to learn culture from other parts of the world. I want them to become empathetic to other individuals and cultures. And in doing so, I want them to research what the stories are there. And then I want to, I want them to find ways to localize it because that's what the pros do. And so anything really that the professionals do, I want to, if I can, um, implement it into my program and have kids find ways that have it make sense to them. And so long story short, you know, their audience is the world. Yeah, very cool. Um, and you kind of are, are segueing into kind of a, a, a big aspect of, of, I think, your career, a big part of your career has been you're really promoting media literacy. Um, and, you know, I, I think I saw a quote that, that you had, a, uh, I don't remember where I, I, yeah, I saw you share this, but um, where you had a student who got excited and, and came in. Um, realizing that her work had been seen by someone in another country um, and just got really excited at the realization that her work is capable of being shared worldwide and um, just how connected we are today and just how plugged in I guess we all are to technology Um, you know we're capable of consuming media from anywhere and sharing media uh, anywhere Um, you know I I want you to kind of uh, talk a little bit about um, kind of the importance of media literacy and I I know it's just a, a big thing for um, for you in your classroom, you know, what does media literacy look like in specifically, I guess, in, in your classroom? Um, and they'll talk about kind of how that it looks like, I guess, uh, in our, our country today and, um, and what teachers can do to really promote media literacy. Sure. So this is a huge topic that obviously I'm very passionate about. 
I'm not going to talk to you today about fake news and disinformation and misinformation. And, you know, there's plenty out there. You can read all the Stanford studies and all that other kind of stuff. What I do know is this, is that students become much more media literate when they create their own media, which is what we're doing in our classes. When they learn the skills and the techniques that the professionals use, and when they start to realize and learn the reasons why, and that it's to gain profit and power, that's the ultimate message. Who can gain the most po profit and who can gain the most power? And that doesn't ultimately lead to the most truth or the, the best information. And so we talk about all of those things, and I want my kids to experience that. I can't, um, you know, I could lecture all I want. I could have them read all they want until they experience it they won't truly understand. And that's how we all are as learners. Um, you know, media literacy, in my opinion, is the number one skill in the United States that is not being valued or taught in schools across the country. We teach it in isolation in classes like ours, or a journalism class, or a two-week digital citizenship unit. And it's incredibly unfortunate, and it's incredibly narrow-minded. I mean, I believe it's as, it's as important to literacy as reading and writing and science and math because we're exposed to it every single day. And I'll tell you, an entire generation of kids grew up with devices and were told to turn them off when they came to school. And they became a voting generation. And then they exposed and learned themselves how to decipher and analyze media, particularly on Facebook. Um, and as we've come to learn, the Russian influence on Facebook was enormous. You know, when, when my kids learned that the largest Black Lives Matter group on Facebook was created by Russians, and when they learned that there was a protest scheduled on the same day for a Black Lives Matter group and a, a Muslim Islamic group scheduled in the same town on the same street against each other, and they were both created by Russian uh, influence, um, their, their, their minds are blown. They're kind of like, whoa, that really happens? Yeah, that really happens. And so, you know, we need to talk about that and for, the, and for schools not to recognize that this is an issue uh, is unbelievable to me. Let me give you a really important story. So I taught an intro to media class last year. It was all about mobile journalism. And we were only gonna allow kids to use their devices to tell stories. And we were also going to infuse social media. It was the very first class that our school approved to, to teach social media. So kids were, were required to create a Twitter account, an Instagram account, and a Facebook account. All through, you know, the, the administration of, you know, a fellow teacher and myself. And when we got to uh, learning about Facebook... Um, of course, not one of them had ever created a Facebook account, and they all laughed at that, and that's not their generation. When I started teaching them about how even just operationally Facebook works and why we use it, Kevin, they were so confused. They had no idea. They couldn't understand the purpose of it. Now, I put this in context because how do you think they learned Instagram? How do you think they learned Snapchat? Where, what lessons are they gathering on how to operate Twitter? They, their mind was in the same place as it was when I was teaching them Facebook, but yet they didn't have anybody besides their friends or celebrities to create and model their profiles online. 
Now, to me, that was unbelievably eye-opening and frightening. And yet when I share that with a lot of people, they're still, you know, unmoved by it. And so I think it's a, you know, as, as media teachers, at minimum, we need to at least take responsibility for that and publish all of our work. As I, I talk with broadcast teachers who still only share internally or maybe put it on a, on a closed YouTube link and do nothing else with it. And I think we're really missing, besides um, what the industry dictates, but we're really missing opportunities to teach kids what it means to publish and how far-reaching their voices can be. And I'll give you one other example. So we, two years ago, I wanted to teach my kids the power of social media. So we created the Global Student News Network. It was an idea that I ripped off of a fourth-grade teacher who curated poems for, from other fourth graders all over the world. It was the Twima Project. It was hashtag T-W-I-M-A. And John Smith, who's an amazing educator. And I heard him speak about this. And I'm like, I want to do this with media. So I brought this idea back to my kids. We created a website. We were going to curate all of the files or, or videos, links we could on Twitter. Of course, that morphed also into a Facebook page. And it started super slow. Um, which was okay, again, process over product. But two years later, we now have had 90 countries register to our website, gsnn.weebly.com, a free website that we feature student work from kindergarten. I, I had a first grade scientist who has a, has a podcast to um, a school in Egypt submit a podcast and video to us about uh, the role of Muslims in the world. Truly incredible. And, I, you know, I can't, the only way I could have offered that to my kids was just to help them with the idea. And then they created it and ran with it. And I think we have opportunities like that every day in our media classrooms. Um, and I think we have a responsibility as media teachers because if the general population of administrators in, in the school will not adopt it, we must. Yeah. That is uh that that's so freaking cool about uh, uh GSN. I mean that that's just that that's so neat. I, I didn't even realize that that uh that that site was there. I'm gonna have to that I just wrote that down. I'm gonna have to definitely check that out. Um, I went went through and read a, a PBS uh PBS NewsHour Teachers Lounge article uh, where you had argued for the use of social media in the classroom. Um, and there was a, a second half of that article where another individual was arguing against the use of social media, and, and her argument basically boiled down to um, the fact that kids are plugged into technology all the time and that they need a chance to, to unplug. Um, so I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on the, the balance, I guess, of how you know, the kids that we're getting in our classroom today, they're digital natives, they've grown up uh, in this technology, it, like they're just surrounded by it their entire lives. Um, how do we balance this idea of, of both uh, keeping them plugged in and, and really being able to teach them this technology, but also giving them a chance to to unplug so that they're not, I guess, wholly consumed uh, by the technology um, and are able to, to kind of learn in an atmosphere that's not always just on a computer screen? That's a, that's a great question. So uh, I have a, a lot of opinions on that as well. I, I firmly believe, yeah, we need to unplug, and there are times to, uh, more often than not, step away. It's one of the things I love about teaching what we teach, 
is when we send kids out to go interview, they actually have to sit down in front of an individual and talk and uh, collaborate with their camera operator and then um, and have an actual conversation. You know, there aren't many classes that are teaching those skills anymore. I think of it this way. You know, we, we do have an entire generation of students coming to us who who don't know any different than a device in their hand whether it was a hand-me-down iPod or a brand new phone at the age of seven or eight or nine or 10, you know, these are the kids that were, are coming into our class, whether we like it or not, uh, that's, that's the fact. Um, I, a couple of things, yeah, the, I talked yesterday in, in my keynote about, you know, usage of the device and my good friend, uh, Carrie Gallagher, who's a media literacy expert, did some research and put together a slide where she showed the amount of hours that tweens are on their devices, and then she showed the amount of hours their parents are on, and it's like a third more. Like, the parents are on more than their kids, so there's some modeling occurring there, and yet, as the adults, we're, like, raising our fists that they're on too much. Um, you know, sometimes we need to look in the mirror. The other aspect of that is, is, is this, you know, in that particular article you were talking about is, yes, kids have been on these devices, and yes, they may know how to manipulate them, but uh, they don't necessarily know how to um, pour through the bowl. And they don't know how to educationally use it. Uh, and that's where we come in or can come in. And I also think of it this way. You know, I was, I was never a very good student, which is ironic now that I'm a teacher. But I also think it's to my benefit that I put my teenager hat back on. And I remember if I was told not to do something as a teenager, what would I do? Well, I would do it. I would do the opposite of what I was always told not to do. And so, of course, that's what's happening a lot. And what I found is if we can allow our kids to kind of scratch the itch and use the device in really educational, powerful ways and productive ways in a curated environment, I think as educators, that's our responsibility. We pray that parents are at home doing it. I can tell you that in many circles that I travel, they are not. And that's frightening. And so, again, where are kids to learn? I also mentioned something similar to this. It would be like um, basically uh, having a student enter, let's say, you know, some level of high sophomore year of high school. They have to write a research paper and they've never been taught the alphabet and they've never been taught sight words and syntax and paragraph formation. But they're like, you need to write a 20-page research paper, and you are going to be um, uh, graded on it. And they'd look at you like you were nuts. Well, that's exactly what we're doing with these devices when we don't help our kids navigate information. I don't know about you, but in the last four or five years, I have kids come into my class. They all have YouTube channels. They already know. They've been creating videos for years. I, what, what can I teach them? You know, Mr. Goble, what can you teach me? Well, once I start offering some structure and reasoning and uh, format and foundation, the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, this is really how it works. And this is why I should really care. And you know what? Maybe actually I could think for myself a little differently now than I did before. And so, I, you know, it's the whole fear-based argument to not use technology, put the phones down, you know, many schools are going one-to-one -one and many teachers are resistant to it. Um, there was a, one of the other keynotes, John Landis, who works uh, with Apple Education, 
really put it in an interesting analogy. He said, you know, uh, he put a, an image of the, uh, the light switch, you know, just like a normal light switch in a, in a room. And he goes, you know, do, do we talk about the light switch? Do, do, do you ever have a conversation with anyone about, hey, let's talk about this light switch. We only do when it's broken, right? He goes, well, these kids, our students are entering the world they're not, they don't talk about Google or, or iPhones or any of these like, like we don't talk about the light switch. It is just a part of their life. And yet it's such a, a, a similar dynamic uh, that, that as adults we don't, fundamentally we haven't quite gotten there to understand that this is the, the reality we're living in. And so I think we're, I, I hate to use the word crisis, but I think we're in a fundamental shift of if we don't as educators, rethink how we are educating um, and with what and with the devices that are at our fingertips, um, I think we are we're missing an opportunity. We may not know the lasting effects for years, but I think there are really smart ways that we can teach kids about the power of social media, about the power of connectivity and networking, and then about the power of putting it down and having a conversation, or about the power of you know, I'm going to have you storyboard this. And yeah, there are apps I could have kids storyboard. Google, I think, Google Apps even has like a great storyboarding tool now, template. But I still print out that storyboard and have them do pencil to paper because I still believe that there's there's a learning that occurs there. And I've seen it in the results. The kids who write out their storyboards rather than, you know, use uh, an app, their videos ultimately turn out better. So I still believe in all of that. And uh, I think there's room for both. And I think we have to be open-minded enough to understand and, and continue to learn ourselves to know that we don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm far from an expert. I don't know. I'm, every day I'm reading and trying to learn more and figure out what's best. And, uh, you know, hopefully that'll continue to change my opinions and direct my learning. It's such an evolving thing. I mean, it was weird when I came to the realization a few years ago as you were had been talking about Facebook that, like, oh, wow, my kids are – on Instagram more than they are on anything else. Instagram and Twitter kind of being probably the top two, and uh, you know you had Snapchat in there for for a while, um, and that was weird for me to come to that realization because I used Twitter, but I I didn't use Instagram. I was on Facebook a lot, and um, so yeah, it's it is kind of a, a difficult thing, especially the way it's it's constantly changing. I love the point that you made about um, about interviews, how doing the the one on one interview. Um, you know, is is a really great skill set uh, of interpersonal skills for um, for kids to learn. There was actually a, a visit that I did with a group of teachers. We went to a Walgreens and we're talking with a manager at a Walgreens, and he had a really excellent point that I just absolutely clung to and uh, told my students about. And um, it was the fact that when he does an uh, an interview with a student, or not necessarily a student, but with a potential employee, um, he has a set of questions. So he's got his interview questions ready. But what he absolutely loves. Uh, is he doesn't want to have to go through his questions. He wants you to be able to come in uh, and just you know look him in the eye and, and just have a conversation with him. And he says the best interviews he gets the one the, in times when he knows he's going to hire somebody is when he's able to toss away the questions and just simply have a conversation. Um, and so that that's a big part of I know what what we do in teaching journalism and um, uh, just you had mentioned that at the beginning of, of that segment and just wanted to to throw in that that anecdote. Um, I'm kind of, kind of curious, uh, what, how, in what ways do you see, uh, I guess, a deficit, not just in social media literacy, but just media literacy in general, 
Um, I know you were you brought up uh, the the dissemination of, of fake news in the past uh, couple years, and you know we're talking about actual fake news that you know when people share articles that that aren't real news. Um, you know, so that's obviously an example of of the deficit that that we have. Um, but in what other ways, perhaps, do you see that deficit, and and what can not just we as journalism teachers, but what do you think in a, a, a core education classroom, in a, in a, a you know a, a math, science, social studies classroom, what can we all as teachers do better to make our kids more media literate, so, more media literate, so that we can overcome this crisis that that you you touched upon? Well, like I mentioned earlier, and like I preach to K to twelve educators, you have to find ways to allow kids to create. Whether it's creating a digital story, whether it's an infographic, whether it's an advertisement, you know, figure out ways in your own lesson plans to create media. You know, video is a great way of doing it because all these devices at schools are having access to, you know, have a video recorder on it. But, um, you know, even if it's a selfie video, uh, but finding ways to make video a practice rather than a project, you know. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of uh, uh, core classroom teachers come to me and say, can you help my class? Uh, can you teach my class how to make a documentary? I want them to make a 10-minute documentary. And my eyes are like, are you kidding me? A 10-minute? You know the, <clears throat> the amount of hours that goes into a 10-minute documentary? And they, they, they just don't quite get that. And so, But it, it becomes a project. Now, if we were to implement the, the video tool as a part of our everyday or weekly practice, whether it's a selfie video. One of the things I talked about in my keynote was, well, how do you have a chance to, you know, how many, <clears throat> excuse me, how many students do you have in a class? And, you know, do you have 20 or more, 30? All the hands go up. And then I ask them how many, uh, you know, how often do you get to conference with every single one of those kids every single day? And of course, none of the hands go up. And then I say, well, what if you had them record a 30-second video telling you what they learned that day or questions they still have, upload it to Google Classroom or Seesaw or SchoolTube or whatever school management system you're using. You go home during your, uh, at night or during your prep and you watch those and you have a, a full understanding of where their thinking is rather than constantly only assessing on paper. Um, and... And the light bulb kind of goes off. And, and so I think it's small ways like that because I go back to the saying and my kids and, I, and on my website, I have a whole playlist of student testimonials of st my former students who are not in the industry, but the lessons that they learned in my class of collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, communication, um, basic life skills, um, and and they carry it to this day. I have a captain in the Army, uh, a former student who works as a nutritionist in Wyoming. I mean, these are not jobs that are any way related to our field, and yet these are the skills that we're teaching. And so if we can do that, if other general education teachers can offer their students that opportunity, not only is it fun to make a video or create media, but it can lead to that discussion now of um, how it was created, who the message was for, what did we omit, what did we include, how could other people view this differently, who was our audience, and you know, kids become more media literate when they create media. And I know I've won 
when I've had students walk into my class and tell me, Mr. Goebel, you have ruined television and film for me forever. I can't look at something without paying attention to the angles or knowing why they're doing it over the shoulder or knowing why they cut in with a gnat sound pop right there. And and I just laugh and I love it. And I know that they are looking at things with a different critical eye. And that I think is a gift that we can give them. And it doesn't, again, have to be taught in isolation or in silos with us as the media teachers. And as media teachers, I think we can offer these suggestions to the other teachers in our buildings. I think we also know that many will push back on that, somehow seemingly telling them that they're maybe doing something wrong. But I think when there are professional development days and opportunities for us to talk about these things and allow a space for teachers who are interested in it than to come to us and for us to share those messages to teachers in our building who are willing to listen. I think we can start gaining better traction on having a more, you know, civic, uh, civic society. Well, and, and also not just media, but, but journalism in particular can also, uh, be very influential and and beneficial to students. Cause I, I know there are some teachers that, you know, they'll, perhaps focus a bit more on film, uh, commercials, or maybe even like doing um, uh, client work, like maybe uh, you know, teaching students how to make a video for someone else, whether that's someone at their school or, or whatever. Um, but also, you know, journalism, right? Like, like getting out there and discovering stories that are happening at your school and your community and telling those stories like you guys do and as, as part of uh, your, the, the GSN um, site that, that you guys run. Um, in what way do you find journalism specifically to, to be beneficial? So that's a great question. And that actually was a part of my keynote um, and a part of a lot of the presentations that I do. There was a study done in, now it was in 2007, which, in, and, I, and I think the numbers probably could be higher now, but it was a study in 2007 of 30,000 high school students, uh, just over 6,000 were on some form of journalism staff. Now, in 2007, you know as well as I do, those were mostly going to be newspaper and yearbook staffs. Now, of course, over the last decade, we have more broadcast journalism um, classes and programs. So anyway, of the 30,000 students and the 6,000 who took part in some form of scholastic journalism education in their school, they scored higher uh, grade point average in every single subject, English, social studies, math. Uh, you name it, every single standardized subject that is tested, the journalistic journalism student scored higher. And so now we ask why? Well, I think the reason why is with journalism requires strong writing. Um, it, you have to be a good writer. Even when kids come into my class and I ask them, why did you take my video class? They say, well, I don't, I don't like to write. And I tell them they might need to schedule an appointment with their counselor then because we're going to do a lot of writing. Anybody that knows a good television or film begins with the planning and the writing. Um, it also is the collaboration and the communication skills um, that can transform then into any other class. And so, um, and that's why I, I, I try to uh, infuse the inspiration to elementary and middle school teachers and high school teachers to have their students you know, be journalists of their class because the journalist has to be inquisitive. They have to be curious. They have to um, look at two sides, multiple sides of a story. 
they can't just go in and believe one thing. They have to dig a little bit deeper to either verify or get an, uh, uh, a differing opinion. And so now you're asking them to dig deeper and think deeper. Um, and of course, the journalist publishes, right? We put our work out there. And that takes a lot of guts. It takes courage. It takes motivation. It takes accountability and responsibility. And so you wrap all that in to the student who is, you know, working as the journalist. And these skills can really benefit them in every single subject that they take. And I also tell our staff and any teacher who will listen, you know, the kids who come to my class are not just my kids. They're your kids, too. So if they've learned skills in my class that could benefit a project or a lesson in your class, that would be awesome if you would allow them to do so. And I'll leave you with, I don't leave you, but I'll give you one other bit of research. I know we're coming up close on time, but there's another study I like to show from Forrester. This was a few years ago. Uh, the study of the brain. Uh, our brain processes visuals 60,000 times faster than text. Let that sink in for a minute. So when I tell that to educators who will get, and who will listen, I'm not talking about getting rid of text, but I'm talking about pairing visual to text. And that's what the journalist does. Even if you are a newspaper writer, you're taking photos. And now many, you know, of the digital websites are also leading with the video. Then they have the article. They have some hyperlinks and some photos, maybe a photo gallery. It's that whole multimedia approach, which we are also hopefully teaching our students, even as video teachers. I'm still tr teaching writing and, um, you know, trying to get them introduced to AP style, all of which um, is very helpful in their overall education. And so... You know, there's a lot of journalism has gotten a bad name um, and and in many cases, rightfully, rightfully so. If you go back to the foundation that what we see nationally and internationally, it's, you know, the news networks are trying to gain profit and power and they'll do whatever they can to get those clicks or those views. But at the foundation of what journalism is in a democratic society it is truth, it is facts, it is multiple sides of a story, it's diversity, it's empathy, and it's critical thinking. And a big part of uh, what you know we do in our classes kind of influences that going forward. Um, and you know the the support that our classes get, I think, from state and national organizations is is definitely um, significant to be able to to take our classes and bring us all together in, in communities. Um, and to kind of grow in that way. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the National Scholastic Press and the Journalism Education Association and, and why you think that those organizations are, are beneficial for uh, teachers and programs to join and, and how you feel like they've helped out your, your classroom and your students' experience? Sure. So I have really strong... Have you noticed, Kevin, I have strong opinions on a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I, I love the journal, the Journalism Education Association (JEA) um, and the National Scholastic Press Association for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it gives us uh, credibility, not only as educators but also um, nationally for our students to have a community to be a part of. I think it's really important for them to be a part of community. I think anybody in life needs to be a part of a community, and so. Those are really credible associations to be a part of, which is why we uh, are involved with them. Um, I also, as an educator, think it helps uh, 
to have that network in that community. And so, you know, whether you're part of the listserv or you're part of the Twitter chats or JEA has a, a, a one book group on Facebook where we read the same book and have conversation wrapped around it and how it's related to journalism or um, I, I think those are really important. What I'll tell you where it's not important, at least not to me, are contests. I, I, I despise maybe is too strong of a word, but I really dislike contests because I think too many um, teach to the contest, um, depend on and build their, their, their viability and their credibility on contests. And I don't do that for a number of reasons. One, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Um, I learned that lesson years ago when I had a student submit a video to uh, a scholastic organization and it was ripped apart. It got a 40 out of 100. Now, I thought it was pretty good, but of course I'm biased. Um, and he said, Mr. Goble, I don't, I, I'm pissed. I don't believe that. And there was a Canon Young Filmmaker of the Year contest. And I'm like, hey, Jake, go for it. If you, if you want to submit it and you want to pay the 25 bucks, go for it. I'll, I'll write a letter and support you. Um, as a 16-year-old, and he won. So Canon camera felt like he was their young filmmaker of the year, whereas this other organization felt like it was a 40 out of 100. Now, number one, that's a great lesson in audience. I, you know, I told him, I'm like, look, everyone's not going to love your work. So that's a really important life skill to learn. But it also sent a larger message that, you know, we can't, we can't depend on contests to validate our work. And so I really push the kids to be intrinsically motivated. When, they, when a student gets to the point where they are not asking me to validate every major change that they make, and they're like, Mr. Goble, it's done. I've turned it in. When you have a chance to watch it, review it, and then please come critique it with me. Um, that, to me, says they have the confidence now because they've probably collaborated with their classmates. And I've probably poked my head in a few places. But um, what we will do uh, is I, if a student creates a video that I think is worthy of larger uh, recognition, I will find a contest for it. So we'll find something that might, it might apply to. So we're not, we're not building. And so our kids will and have won some awards. We've won a few, you know, and it's been a few years now, some National Scholastic Press Association awards. But I'll tell you, the, the origin of the story was not for the award. It was for our show. It was for them to tell a story. And it happened to fit the criteria that NSPA was looking for. And so we submitted it. Um, and so, yes, that brings, you know, that's nice to win those awards. But in my experience, I'll also tell you, I've gone through and seen a lot of different administration, administrative teams. Um, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it hasn't mattered. Um, to where I am today and where I've started, you know, those plaques don't really matter. And so if it doesn't matter, then to those people, then, you know, let's not put so much of a focus on it. I will also tell you, though, too, you know, attending national conferences has been one of the, uh, the best experiences kids will tell me they ever had in high school. Um, it's unfortunate I have been unable to attend the last few um, JEA, NSPA ones uh, due to a lack of funding. And, it, you know, ultimately that, that hurts me because it hurts the students because then the students can't attend. And I've had letters still to this day from kids who have told me that those national conference were one of their best high school experiences, period, not just because of my class. Uh, because you're with, with three, four, five thousand like-minded individuals, again, with that community. 
Um, and that's validating. Just being around that kind of energy and learning from professionals in the field is validating. And the last point to that is, and one of my main goals when I became a teacher was, again, to offer my students professional work. I wish this was my idea, but it was actually one of my college professor's ideas where when I was uh, in college, um, we helped him produce a three-minute segment for the local NBC station that aired every Friday as kind of their kicker story at the end of the the, the 5 p.m. broadcast on Fridays. And um, so I wanted my kids to be involved with professional stations. And so I sought after, and our kids' work was good enough to partner with um, HEC-TV, which is Higher Education Cable Television. Uh, they have a television presence, but they also have hundreds of thousands of subscribers on iTunes. And they produce programs that are uh, seen all around the, the country. And they, for the last five, six years now, have asked kids to create content uh, for some of their programs. And they will come in. They'll have a director and a host come into my class and talk to my class and critique my kids' work. That, to me, is even better than anything I could get from JEA or any other national. That's no slight against them, but that's just that's personal. Like that's in-person critique that they're getting from Emmy Award-winning directors. And uh, a fun story to that was a few years ago, um, I had a student submit some content for one of the HEC TV uh, Explore programs, is what it was called. And it, they HEC TV submitted that program for their Emmy nomination for the year, and they won their category, and my 18-year-old student, Reese, won a trophy. Um, that, to me, I mean, that is greater than any, than any contest, right? I mean, that's the ultimate contest, and it was really because we had built this relationship with a local news agency um, to offer kids professional opportunities, which they then put, obviously, on their resume and helps them get into college and scholarships and internships. And so those have been more um, valuable to my kids, for my kids, than anything um, else that I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I love your, your point about um, the, 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 the judge and, and how it's a lesson in, in audience because I have to make that point with students all the time is, you know, look, different people are going to have just different thoughts uh, on your work. And the most important thing is just that you, you did it and you did something that you felt confident in um, and that you did it to the best of your abilities. Um, and regardless of how a certain audience might view it, um, you might get, you'll get positive feedback from some people and negative feedback from others. And, but doing it to the best of your abilities is, is definitely uh, the most important lesson that I think they can, they can get out of that. Um, For sure. And, and the feedback. I mean, that, so if you're going to submit to a contest, make sure you will get critical feedback because many times as a teacher, it's like the parent will tell the kid a thousand times the lighting wasn't good enough, the audio wasn't strong enough, and they don't believe us, but they will believe, you know, that critique or that feedback. So that's another area that, you know, contests can be good is if you have, if you actually, you know, can receive feedback. But again, I think that, uh, um, isn't you can get feedback from anybody. I mean, submit it to the local station. Find a local professional who will be willing to look at some of your kids' work, and if they can offer feedback, that's what's most important. Oh, hundred percent agree. I've been asked to judge a couple different contests for um, either like local or, or different organizations, and when I sit down and view, that's one thing that I, I make sure I spend the time to do is go through and provide as thorough feedback as possible because I know that's the most valuable. Uh, element to it regardless of how it scores just having that written 
uh, you know, written response to explain like here's kind of what you know this judge is, is viewing, um, how they're viewing your work is is just absolutely crucial to a student being able to understand how someone else is is interpreting what they're doing. Um, can you uh, uh, go ahead and explain to us like some of the the published works that you have and and uh, kind of preview for us uh, uh, a couple items that that are available on iTunes uh, for people to download. Um, you've got a, a, a uh, item called Six Word Story, Six Unique Shots. Uh, you've got Interview with an Expert. Um, can you tell us about those and, and if teachers want to download those, uh, what they can expect to, to, to get out of those? Sure. So I've been fortunate enough to work with Apple Education uh, since 2011, and I attend some of their summer institutes and learned how to create an iBook, learned how to create an iTunes U course through them. And so I have published the, the six word story, six unique shots, has become um, uh, popular because uh, it teaches the basics of media literacy, cinematography, storytelling. Um, it's been used, again, by kindergarten classes all the way up to pre-med students, um, uh, which has been amazing to me, and all over the world. And so it's a very customizable um, project, but it's also one that you could just, that's available start to finish. Um, and I have my intro broadcast students do it um, every single semester because it, it teaches them um, once I teach them how to do some editing and the basics of wide, medium, and tight, it now lends itself to telling story through camera angles and color and audio um, and putting it together and through limited text and how inference can be important. And so uh, that book is available. Interview an expert will uh, teach kids how to conduct an interview uh, as a conversation, not a question and answer or interrogation. Um, and those are free books. And I also have a Become a Citizen Journalist uh, iTunes U course, which you can uh, take modularly or you can go soup to nuts, start to finish. That's also free. And you can get all of these on my website. If you go to dongobel.com under published, um, you will see those iTunes resources through, that were published through Apple Education. Um, you'll also see some articles that I've had published on Education Week and PBS um, and then also on my website, you know, everything on my website is free. And I do that, obviously, because we're all in this together. I'm not really interested. In, we didn't, I, I, made, I, I made six figures when I was in business, Kevin, and it, I hated it. And so now it's like, let's just help each other, you know. And um, I wish I would have had more help with content. And so under my resources page, there's tons of free resources, uh, projects I've created, blogs that I've helped curate, other resources that I use every single semester that are, are helpful, like the JEA digitalmedia.org site, the Academy of Scholastic Broadcasting with Dave Davis, um, you know, my interview with Steve Hartman. I had a Skype interview with Steve Hartman to my class. He offers some great advice. Um, learning how to edit with iMovie. Um, on an iOS device, I created a 13-video tutorial series for my students, and then I published it, and others were like, this is great. Can we use it as well? And I was like, of course. And so um, you'll find a lot of resources on there uh, as well. So anything on my site is free. I've even, the, you mentioned the six-word storybook. Also, I, since the publication of that book, I've had teachers supply me with resources that they created based upon that book. And so... I've curated those on my resource page to share with the greater audience too. So all of that you can download for free. 
a storyboard. Um, at, so, so my hope is is that these are resources and curriculum for teachers. Uh, and then recently, I should mention this summer, I finally updated, and I had done it independently, but um, I, I got asked so many times, you know, like for that beginning teacher or what, what's your workflow? And, and so I've put, I've basically dumped all of my resources now as hyperlinks or PDFs on my resources page um, from the project I start with in broadcast one to the project I end with in broadcast one to the eight to nine different project options I give in my second level class. Um, and with grading rubrics and directions, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's just all there. And so I'm, I hope people find it useful, and I always offer support if anyone needs it. Awesome. And then uh, for your students' work, uh, you mentioned uh, gsn.weebly.com. Well, it's, it's, GSN, it's GSNN, Global Student News Network. And that's also, you can, you can, you can connect to that on dongobel.com as well. And then you can also connect to our student publication, which is lhstv.net. Um, and that's what we publish there. So the Global Student News Network will be content from all over the world. Uh, there's a little bit of my student content on there, but very little. And then on lhstv.net is all of our student content. And um, we have from our, from our journalistic news packages to our film page, if you kind of scroll under each uh, category headline, there are subcategories. And uh, lessons included, student films, news stories, you know, anything that you, you might be interested in, blogs, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. And then, Don, final question. Uh, when you get asked by someone you're meeting for the first time, what do you do for a living? Uh, what kind of response do you give them to explain uh, your role as a broadcast advisor? And, and what, do you, what kind of reaction do you tend to get in return when you try to explain what you do? Uh, well, I tell them I'm a multimedia instructor and a media literacy advocate. And typically the responses I get is, a, oh, well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so um, we never had that when I was in high school. Um, you must get kids really who, you know, just love being in there. Um, you know, that, that's kind of the reaction, you know, that I get that it's, that it's an elective. It's like, uh, oh, they're not forced to be in there. Um, but, th I mean, that's, that's who I am. I'm a multimedia educator. You know, I, I teach high school, but I also believe I teach, you know, any, any educator or student uh, who will listen. And uh, that's kind of been my goal is to cast a wide net and uh, help who I can. Very cool. Don, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, I hope that you uh, have a couple, uh, some great experiences at the, the speaking engagements that you have coming up. And uh that you're able to hopefully find some time to enjoy yourself and maybe lounge by the pool a little bit uh, for the rest of your summer. I will try to do so, Kevin. I know it'll, we'll have some good experiences and I'll share it online and uh, just continued success to you. I really appreciate this as a resource that you're offering teachers. Um, I think what you're doing is wonderful. And uh, I also will take the time then to congratulate you as well on becoming a, a father here in the fall and know that that will be the best job you will ever have. Oh yes, that'll uh, uh, that that'll be a whole different ball game for me. I'm uh, but very much looking forward to it. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, catch you later, Don. All right, take care, Kevin. And that was my conversation with Don Goble. You heard him mention gsnn.weebly.com. Uh, I mistakenly thought it was just one end during our conversation. That's a product of Skype sometimes. 
dropping a, a syllable or making the audio muffle just a tad. Uh, but just wanted to make sure you heard that URL correct. That's gsnn.weebly.com, and Weebly spelled W-E-E-B-L-Y. Uh, check out some of his students' work there. And again, be sure to check out his webinar on July 11th. Follow Don on Twitter at dgobel2001 and check out his website, dongobel.com, for links to his published content. All right, that's it for the next two weeks. Um, The week after 4th of July, I will have Jason Santo from Geneva High School on the show. Uh, Until then, please rate and review this series on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Just the other day, this show hit its 1,000th download, so that's a nice... Uh, milestone to hit. Please share with your colleagues, uh, and if you have any suggestions or thoughts, do not hesitate to email theyteachthat at gmail.com. I hope you all have a fantastic 4th of July. We're halfway through 2018. Uh, Some of us are already halfway through our summer. Uh, Enjoy some time with friends and family. Do some outdoor activities. Eat a hot dog. Watch some fireworks. Just take advantage of all that this time of year has to offer, and I'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Bye.